The Wings Over New Zealand show is brought to you in association with the Wings Over New Zealand Aviation Forum, New Zealand's number one aviation discussion forum online. There you'll find discussion on all aspects of New Zealand aviation, from history to current affairs and thousands of photos covering the Royal New Zealand Air Force, airlines, general aviation, warbird restorations, air show news, sport aviation, home building, gliding, aviation media and much, much more. You'll be in good company with other aviation enthusiasts, including pilots, engineers, warbird owners and restorers, historians and authors, modelers, aviation photographers and many others. Sign up to the Wings Over New Zealand community now. It's free and easy. Just Google Wings Over New Zealand and you'll find the forum. Hi, it's Matt Jolly from warbirdradio.com. Listen, I am thrilled to have Dave Homewood as part of our broadcast family and bring your stories, the stories of the RNZAF, heard right here on Wings Over New Zealand to our global audience. Thanks for listening and hope to hear from you sometime at warbirdradio.com. G'day, I'm Steve Vischer. And I'm Grant McCarran. And we're from Plain Crazy Down Under, Australia's aviation show. And you can find us at plainecrazydownunder.com. We reckon for the best coverage of the Kiwi warbird restoration and aviation scene, you can't go past Dave Homewood and the Wings Over New Zealand show. On you, Dave. Yeah, good on you, mate. Yeah, we've got to get to New Zealand soon. Where is that anyway? Well, it's where I grew up. I thought that was Brisbane. Extended, the ETOPS Aviation Podcast. Aviation-extended.co.uk And remember, there's no E at the beginning of Extended. Extended. I remember some men started prying and others started crying. Um, Partway through it, one guy got to his feet and started to run. I was scared and let that be no secret. Next thing they set the spandar up there and they opened up. And there's bloody trees, bits of trees flying. And... New Zealand tanks were over the other river and one of our men said to them, he said, don't start your tanks up. For five minutes, we'll be out of it. Well, some silly bugger started his tank and the Germans put over a shell and right in the middle of the bridge. It was a bitterly cold morning and I scratched down in this damn hole and it took me two days before I could stand up straight again. Hear the stories of New Zealanders in the Italian campaign in World War II, the Courage and Valor podcast, www.newzealandersatwar.com. The Wings Over New Zealand show would like to acknowledge the great support it's had from Fly DC3. You can fly back in time with Fly DC3 from Ardmore Airport, charter the DC3 Dakota and fly into the past. It's an experience you'll never forget. Fly DC3. Go to www.flydc3.co.nz Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show. And this is Wings Over Australia. I'm Dave Homewood, your host. And my co-host here, James Kitely. Hello. 
And uh, we're sitting here with Keith Webb. Hi, Keith. G'day. Keith is uh, from Image Control and is uh, quite well known for his work filming veterans and recording their stories. Um, can you tell us uh, how you actually got interested in aviation to start with, Keith? Well, my interest came partly from my father, who was in Sixth Squadron. He was a wireless air gunner on Beauforts. But more from my uncle, who was actually killed during the war, and he was killed on the same day as the Dam Busters raid. Wow. Yeah, he was flying a Hampton in uh, 415, I think, squadron, Canadian, Canadian Coastal Command Squadron, and they were attacking German shipping off the Dutch coast. Right. Yeah, and his, his was the only body recovered, and I suspect because he had his parachute on, he was the only one who got out, but he was drowned. Okay. So was that um, Coastal Command? Yes, it was part of Coastal Command. Right. Yeah, they're based at Thorny Island, mostly. Okay. And you sort of um, grew up with aviation around you, then having a, a father? I was just always interested. I uh, Like a lot of boys my of my era, back in the 60s, I made just about every airfix model I could afford to buy. Uh, I even went and had a paper round so I had the money to buy these things and the paints <laughs> and all the bits and pieces. <laughs> Fair enough, too. Like many, like many young boys, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And um, what about the, uh, the interest in the veterans? Where did that come from? Well, I was very fortunate to be introduced to the Tomorrow Aviation Museum around about 2002. And it was at a time where they were thinking about doing a DVD of the aircraft in the collection and also individual videos for each aeroplane to be shown in the hangar. Yep. And as part of that, it was important to interview people associated with the aircraft because some of the planes there, such as the, the Gloucester Meteor, is painted in George Hale's colours. Yep. So we had to interview George Hale. Uh, Bobby Gibbs Spitfire, uh, the, the Spit Mark 8 is representing Bobby's Spit. Yep. And so I interviewed Bobby with Ted Sly, who was another Spitfire pilot. And the ball sort of started rolling there. We, we interviewed a number of veterans and ground crew associated with the museum aircraft. And then the museum came up with the idea of furthering that by, by interviewing as many veterans as possible. And that became the Unsung Heroes Project. Fantastic, fantastic. And there's a bit about the Unsung Heroes Project on the uh, Tomorrow Aviation Museum website, I understand, Keith? Yes, that's right. There are actually two versions of it. The one that's on the website, they, they set up before I was doing the interviews, and it was a little bit like you, you can pay a small fee, and they'll... It's a bit like a memorial to, to your like relative. Like a memorial wall or something. A little bit yeah. like that, yes. But the Unsung Heroes that I'm involved in is quite different. It's, yep. it's a series of interviews. They're all filmed, and the idea is... There's a short version edited for the museum, and visitors can see that at the museum. Right, okay. And then you keep the, the longer version in the, in the archive? That's correct, yes. yes. Some of them, they, they range from, I suppose, 15 minutes for somebody who doesn't have a lot to say to oh, well over an hour. Some of them, they, they, some guys just have some most amazing stories. Yeah. In fact, you get the occasional one who, who, who'll just be talking, and they suddenly stop, and they'll think, and they said. I'm remembering things I didn't even remember. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've had that as well. Yeah. That's amazing, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. That's a really neat thing. About what what uh, our listeners can't see is we're actually sitting in, in uh, Keith's office at Image Control at the moment and we've just been spending well, probably an hour or so scrolling through some of the photographs from uh, a real mixture of these uh, mostly wartime veterans but some post-war ones. And uh, um, anybody who's involved in this kind of game will recognise that thing where you're doing the flipping through some photographs. Oh, go back one. That's really interesting because... 
because it's got a, a so-and-so, all that arcane information that uh, people like ourselves and this, this side of the business find fascinating. Um, and so uh, it's really good that Keith's got, got so many, it's such a diversity of veterans. And we're not talking here um, just RAAF or Pacific War. We're talking, as, as Keith just said about his uncle, um, people flying with the, with the RAF uh, as an Australian. Um, we've had a couple of uh, Kiwis going past in the, in the, in the slideshow here. Um, a, real, a real variety. Um, can you think of a couple that you might pick out as wanting to mention in this conversation, Keith? Well, there are quite a few who were memorable, uh, <laughs> and, and it's funny how some of the interviews actually come about. There was, there was one guy who actually contacted me because I'd f put some photos on a website of bow fighters attacking German shipping, and, and I just made a note there saying, I don't know what type of ship that is. And I had a con contact from a bow fighter pilot who said, that's an e-boat. Ah, uh, and yeah. I'll come and see me and I'll tell you all about it. How, how to sink them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that, that, that turned into an interview and that, that, was, that was quite amazing. Some of them are, are very emotional. Yes. A lot of people, a lot of bailout stories. Yeah. There was a, a guy from Bendigo I interviewed who was a mid-upper gunner on Lancasters. They were shot down near the target. Uh, they all got out except, I think, the tail gunner. So they all landed safely. Uh, he broke his leg getting out of the aircraft. He actually fell out of the turret because of the attitude okay. of the aircraft. Had to crawl along the fuselage, drag himself along, find his parachute, put it on and fall out the door that was fortunately open Incredible. at the time. And, uh, and then when he landed um, with a broken leg, he was fortunately the, the police found him before he was killed, taken to a police cell and... You know, his story continued, but what he discovered later was every other crew member, with the exception of one, was murdered. Yeah, wow. basically lynched because of the, the townsfolk. Yes. Um, which was a, was one of the sad, or nastiest parts of the war that we often get overlooked today. And I guess one of the things about these veteran stories, and we were, we were chatting about this earlier, and it's worth recapping, is that we tend to forget... It's very easy to see the war as a big narrative and everybody's story fitting into that big narrative. But actually one of the things that's fascinating about the job you two do is that you often get the different story, the individual story, some of the less pleasant stories uh, or really nasty stories in some cases, but often um, quite human stories as well. And it's the things that, you know, if you're writing a novel, you wouldn't, wouldn't dare put in because no one would believe you. But these are um, things that really happen to real people as well, aren't they? That's yes. right. That's yeah. right. And, and the, the breadth of people I interview, it's not just pilots or air crew, there's ground crew as well. I remember interviewing a fellow who was a cook in, in New Guinea. Yeah. And the story he told me, which I've used... To, to as a bit of an icebreaker with some of the other blokes is how the powdered eggs when you scrambled them you could bounce them off the floor <laughs> <laughs> not a very appetizing uh, element to the food but and that's the thing is that uh, one of the great things that, that you guys do which i often don't get to do with uh, articles uh, when you is that human side of the story it's very easy to end up focusing on the aircraft the course of the war the, the tough end of things but you know just just trying to make to, to live in the pacific say was, was very hard or uh, people yeah. operating out of even places like Russia or so yeah, forth. Exactly. And, and in North Africa as well. well uh, North Africa's a classic. Yeah. I think you've got quite a lot of people with North African experience, haven't you, Keith? Yes, I do, and there's not that many of them around anymore, unfortunately. 
Well, that's actually, I think that's one of the interesting things where we are now is that it's great that uh, Dave in New Zealand and Keith here, and I can say this because I'm not, I'm not doing what you guys are doing, it, it, are capturing this stuff. And I, I think anybody listening will probably be able to think of a couple of other organisations. Um, in America, for instance, the Experimental Aircraft Association uh, has a, a wonderful program of capturing um, from veterans right up to more, more recent people. We're capturing this stuff as we can. It's not like the real thing. It's nothing to... Uh, nothing like meeting the real veteran or, or um, the, the actual person and the, their family experience for the family is very important but it's also good this stuff isn't being lost um, yeah. both the memories and uh, and these photos yeah and one of the other things that I, I've, I've found is the, the guys often find it quite a um, sometimes enjoyable sometimes yeah. a bit um, it, it's cathartic, the, the, it is cathartic yeah yeah uh, for instance I was, I was approached by somebody who saw me at Tamora? Who actually bumped into someone, a family member at a pub, and they and they they knew that I'd interviewed their, I think it was, husband, and uh, said he's he's been a changed man since the interview. Wow. And hopefully in a good way. Yeah, it's exactly. <laughs> and, and and some of the guys I do keep on going back and seeing because they become quite good friends. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that too. Yeah, I've become friends with a lot of the ones that I've, um, you know, made contact through veteran interviews as well. Um, yeah, that they they're remarkable people. They yes. really are. The thing that's that, that strikes me though is you you have someone who's almost a total stranger when you meet them at the door. Yeah. You then very quickly get into this incredibly intimate conversation and, and, and very intense experiences too. And often yeah, you're dealing with their their probably the most intense, most dangerous, pressurised part of their life uh, for a lot of people. Not everybody. And some places. of the darkest moments. Their darkest moments. Mo- often, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And, and I often get the comment at the end, uh, one, as one bloke put it, I don't often have days as good as this. That's really interesting. Is that, is that an experience you'd, you'd uh, agree with, Dave? Um, yeah, I, I do. Um, I have had some that have just said, I, I, I'm really glad you came and I really, I'm really glad that um, you know, someone's there to listen and that sort of thing. But there was one chap who was a 95-year-old uh, he was a meteor- meteorologist in the RNZF in the Pacific. Now, who who remembers the meteorologists? Yeah. You know? Who remembers what those guys did? Now, he was living the same kind of crap uh, lifestyle yep. up there in Guadalcanal as everybody else, but, you know, doing his job in an office and nobody ever sort of remembers those guys. And he was at this rest home, and the next day I went back to do some other interviews, and I, I bumped into him, and he said, he said afterwards, he's like... Oh, after your interview yesterday, I spent all last night reliving the war, and I and I apologised to him, and and he said, no, no, it was great. I've I've, <laughs> I've remembered things that I'd forgotten, you know. <laughs> and, yeah, absolutely. And I think uh, one of the things I think you've both told me in different ways at different times is that uh, often family members don't realise that you know Uncle Charlie or or father or whatever has. You know, they they know he was in the services, but often they didn't talk about. It. I mean, the, the culture was if you came back from World War Two, everybody else had come. We forget this now. Yeah. Everybody else had come back from the war. Everybody else had had traumatic experiences and, and major losses. And here in Australia, obviously the RSL, the, the Return Service League, had a very big part to play. And obviously in New Zealand, you have the equivalent there. Um, and some of that was sort of packaged in there, or there was tall tales told there. But it wasn't for family consumption a lot of the time. And now, of course, when you guys started, people would have been in their 70s at the youngest, 80s, and now we're talking about the remaining ones are mostly in their 90s. Um, and families are going, wow, we never realised that this person, had, you know, that father had this story. Um, is there any? Can you think of one, Dave, where you can think of that particular example? And I'm sure Keith's got examples too. 
there's there's loads of examples of um, people like that. But one um, one chap, I knew an old lady in uh, Cambridge where I'm from, and she found out what I was doing in terms of the original project I was working on, Wings Over Cambridge, which was just the Cambridge people who were in the Air Force getting their stories. She rang me up and she said, look, my brother was in the Air Force. He's never told me what he did. I know he's a pilot, but he's never told me what he did. He's never told his wife. He's never told his sons. or He's never told anybody. We ask him, he won't say. Well, I rang him up last night and I told him he has to tell you. And here's his number. <laughs> and and uh, so I gave him a call and he had a remarkable story and he let me he let me hear it like uh, we i just recorded it over the telephone um because it was for text it yeah. was for the website uh and it was remarkable he he trained as a pilot uh, got to 75 squadron was on his first operation as the um second dicky pilot and they got um, shot up. The tail gunner was killed. Would this have been Wellington's though? No, it was Lancaster. Lancaster, okay. Uh, and and the, the aircraft was going down. Everybody started bailing out. And the pilot, uh, Noel... I've forgotten his last name. But the pilot chose to stay in the aircraft, which was out of control, but he had enough control to steer it away from this French village. Stayed with it and was killed. Now... Um, uh, Jack Morris, the, the chap who I was interviewing, he's the second pilot, uh, he survived it and the rest of the crew survived it. The tail gunner and the pilot were killed. That village, every year now, holds a ceremony to remember that pilot. And Jack Morris and, and the rest of the crew, I think they split up, but they managed to get back to the Allied lines because it was after D-Day. Yep. He went back to Britain, went through the process of re rehabilitating was put onto another squadron. I think he did something like six more operations and was shot down again, <laughs> and had to had to walk several hundred miles across L, uh, across uh, Axis territory, back to the uh, back to the lines. Got to a point where he could hear Scottish voices and thought, "I'm there." Stood up and started running towards them, and between the, the Scots and him were um, Germans, and he was captured. And so he <laughs> he, he ended up in. Um, in the in the POW camp at um, Duisburg, I think it was. Yeah, uh, incredible story. And he he survived. He um, switched to the army after the war and ended up becoming a um, quite well known um, army officer. He's still alive now in Auckland. So, oh, that's that's one of the things is that uh, well, I mean that's a that's a brilliant illustration, isn't it, Keith? Of um, the family didn't know the story at all, and and you're yes. you're, you're you're literally revealing stuff that's uh, been hidden, not for any. Uh, reason it needs to be hidden but just culturally that's what we we did back then and now yes. um it's good to, to that. And something else we've talked on earlier is that obviously most of these guys are in their 90s and and um very few uh few still around i mean we had the last veteran from the first world war i think uh made it until only a couple of years ago or was it actually last year um so it, the time is very much running out but um how many interviews do you think you've got uh, archived now keith i have done about 510 Wow. <laughs> Not all World War Two because no. uh, we cover Korean, yep. uh, Malayan emergency, um, Vietnam, Vietnam. Uh, even Gulf War. Oh, I've done some of those Gulf guys. War, yeah. yeah. Yep. So, would you say with the Gulf War and or even and Vietnam too, perhaps? Would you say the experiences of the military experiences similar or different for these guys? 
Well, it's interesting. I, before I did any Vietnam or Gulf War interviews, you, you sort of think, well, they're, 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 some, they're somehow diminished because World War Two is so big in our minds. Yeah. 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 However, let me tell you, the experiences that some of those guys went through are every bit as as uh, exciting and terrifying as anything you'd find in World War Two. Are these um, all Air Force stories? Or are you doing Army um, stories? I do. Well, well there's, there's Air Force, there's Fleet Air Arm, there's Army Aviation as well, uh, particularly Vietnam onwards. Yep. Um, one of the guys who, who flies regularly at Tamora, um, he's, he's a DFC winner. That's right. Mick Haxel. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. A nine squadron helicopter pilot yeah. in Vietnam. But sometimes, that's something I was going to mention before. You interview someone who's connected with a very, very famous incident. Yeah. And yeah. the one that comes to mind is a fellow who was one or two squadron, I can't remember, who was flying Hudson, and they'd been out on a recce. And as they were coming back, they, they noticed the Prince of Wales and Repulse. Ah, yeah. And as they were watching, uh, said the, they, they just lit up with lights all over the aircraft, and they said, they're signalling. said, no, they're shooting at something. And they witnessed the Japanese attack... Wow. Yeah. And they didn't. Those two ships didn't last very much longer. No, they didn't. They no, I can't. I think it was the repulse that went first. I can't remember. But he said he saw it turn over. Mm. Yeah. Oh wow! Because I mean, yeah. that was one of those uh, moments in well, in military history overall, where uh, the supremacy of, in this case, yes. Japanese army bombers against capital, yes. in this case again, British capital ships. The, the, we look back now. The bombers involved were. Uh, in war, in World War Two terms, relatively primitive types, but they had no trouble in basically um, blowing these two um, no. capital ships. And apart. at first, at first, the ships were combing the torpedoes, so turn into towards them, so that torpedoes go either side. And so the Japs woke up to that pretty quickly, and and uh, the next wave came through in different angles, and yeah. and that's how they got them. Yeah, and uh, yeah, one of the tra and I think one of the things I find fascinating is that to me. Uh, World War Two, obviously it's a very complicated thing and fascinating however you cut it, um, but it's very easy to overlook how tough the early war was, and when I say early war I actually mean two distinct phases, I mean the early war in Europe and North Africa and so on, so 1939 to well, 41 really, when the tide started to turn, and in the Pacific of course from the, the very end of 1941 forwards, when we didn't have the, the good enough equipment, um, there were very few people, um, they were often not well trained or trained in, 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 in um, uh, peacetime conditions and of course the Japan, Japanese were rampaging at that stage and, yeah. and, and were feeling invulnerable, we believe they're invulnerable and um, so things like you know guys flying the P-40s, P-39s, um, we were just talking about the, the Banshee, the, um, the army version of the, um, the, the uh, SBD, um, in, in really bad conditions and, and um, managing sometimes to win through and, and often not and those are a lot of the voices that we've lost of course at the war yeah uh, you know some of the guys that are in the early part of the pacific war they were in um obsolete aircraft mm, uh, two, two two chaps that i've interviewed were uh in wildebeest the area of wildebeest in singapore which is a classic and for those for those Perhaps you wouldn't be familiar with the Vildevis. We, we obviously, all three of us, cannot imagine how you couldn't be familiar with the Vildevis. It's an yeah. aircraft close to all of our hearts in its own way. But uh, it's it's a, a humongous biplane that looks like it escaped from the First World War. Um, if you you know imagine yourself a, a Tiger Moth and then and then sort of quadruple or five times the Tiger Moth. It's got a massive wingspan. Um, you can walk under the fuselage quite comfortably, can't you, Dave? You can. Um, and, and, and when you get into the cockpit, which I have recently with the Vincent, which is the same aircraft. You had to you, mention that. That's fair you, enough. You, you, <laughs> you, you look you look down and you're like, 
a well, long way up. It is a, it is a really long way up. But he would have travelled it. I mean, I think its cruising speed would have been around the hundred miles an hour mark, not not hugely well, greater yeah, than that. that. No. That was that was the top speed. Top speed. Okay, yeah. downhill. Cru- <laughs> cruising, so the cruising speed. was ninety. <laughs> <laughs> but they, they, these guys, the, uh, one of them was in one hundred squadron, and the other was in uh, thirty six squadron. Um, by that stage, uh, would that be in Singapore? In Singapore, yep. Yep. The Japanese had already uh, been bombing Malaya and uh, Singapore. But they were sending another fleet, which was going to cut halfway down the Malayan Peninsula and cut off all mainly British and uh, Australian troops. Right. And the remaining aircraft that hadn't been bombed on the ground. Now, up to this point, this is really interesting. Talking to these guys, I had I'd, I'd not got this impression until I talked to both these guys. The wildebeest was doing really well. It was a, it was actually really perfect for its role because it was doing night bombing up and down the peninsula. And it was actually putting a real big dent in the Japanese forces, because those guys had actually been flying there for, you know, some of them had been there for years, and they knew that place like the back of their hand. Yeah. And um, the Japanese couldn't shoot them down because they kept shooting in front of them because they were so slow they couldn't <laughs> judge the couldn't judge the speed. A bit like famously the the, um, the successful operations with the fairy swordfish, where um, mm. the, the fairy swordfish did very well. And I think yep. behind all of this, come back to what, what you're, the thread you're following, though. But one of the things that we uh, both are very aware of, but often overlook, a lot of it is luck, and a lot of it is the the situation of the war at the time. If you're in an obsolete bomber or a, a bomber that's not ideal, if you don't have enemy fighters against you, or you're not attacking heavily defended, experienced targets, then you've probably got as good a chance as anybody else. Or you could just be unlucky. And we were talking about a, a Battle of Britain uh, a pilot who basically was his guns let him down, and uh, the other guy managed to hit him in the leg, and he lost his leg, but was able to bail out, which is why yeah. you have the story. But yeah. Sorry, back to what you were saying, Dave. Yeah, well, this this Japanese fleet was um, aiming to hit the beach. They the British knew it, and they didn't have enough time to try and do a night a night raid as what they were normally doing. So they said, "Look, we've got to get these guys before they hit the beach." So they put every available aircraft into the air. Now, by this stage, most of the wildebeest had already been bombed on the ground, so they had a mix of wildebeest and albacores that the RAF had basically pinched off the Navy because the Navy had gone right. and just left them. Uh, they were escorted by one Hudson, which I think might have been Australian, and uh, a bunch of remaining um, Buffalo fighters. Now, they went in in two waves, and around about two-thirds of those guys didn't come back. Yeah. Now, they hit... Well, they, they didn't do much damage to the ships. They may have hit a couple of the ships, but they didn't do any real damage because they were dropping bombs, not torpedoes, even though they were torpedo bombers. They didn't have the range to take the torpedoes with them because they had to put the belly tanks on. Right. You, you had one or the other. Now, those guys who did come back, uh, they just had to ca- carry on with life, and they were never recognised. Now, the same week, as, as you were saying, with the yeah. swordfish, a very similar raid happened in the English Channel yeah. where the swordfish attacked the um, Sean Holston Gunnison exactly and yeah. and the lead man on that got the Victoria Cross Eugene Esmond yes and and, and, and I mean you know we, we thoroughly the, that was definitely into the Valley of Death type uh, uh, appalling uh, raid to have even had carried out but you know they yeah. had their orders and they followed them and uh, their luck didn't wasn't good on swordfish for that one occasion no no but it was a very similar circ- circumstance now none of those guys on the um, in the Pacific in the in the Pacific in the in the Singapore Malaya raid, none of them got any recognition whatsoever. 
you know, their leader should, who who um, I believe was actually killed, he should have got the Victoria Cross for the same same, same type of same action reason, at the yeah. same sort of time. And and that's the thing, isn't it? Part of what we're getting here, and I think Keith would definitely agree, and maybe you can think of an example is. Uh, we're often picking up stories, sometimes as we said earlier, they're, they're famous events, but often they're stories that have got completely forgotten. Sometimes they're stories that have been deliberately forgotten because they, uh, they either don't reflect well or someone was being naughty or someone was actually breaking some pretty fundamental rules or laws or whatever. Um, nowadays, I think most people are reasonably comfortable and I'm sure we've had some tall tales too. I'm sure you've been told things you don't quite believe on occasion, but yeah. um, you know, th- th- this is, this is the, you know, in that sense actually, even though it might not be um, the real story as we'd expected is the true true tale from the time and as people see them. Yes, I, I find I take people, you just have to take them at face value, Very even though some of them you do think, yeah, yeah, no, I, I, I know otherwise. Yeah. 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 yeah, and that was actually something we just talked about, isn't it? Is, is um, these guys have first-hand experience and, and you obviously respect that um, and, and in most cases that that's, uh, can't be beaten, it's, it's vital. Um, but uh, on some occasions you're going, as you say, I'm not quite sure about that, but even so it's worth capturing. Can, can you think of an interesting story, Keith, where you, you just were completely surprised by the nature of somebody's story or, or something just compared out of the blue? It's quite a common thing, I suppose, in the nature yeah, of this. Well, I, I, was, I wasn't expecting that one about Prince of Wales and, and Repulse, that was mm. that was one out of the box. Yeah. Um, I was trying to think of another one. Um, actually, before we get to that, uh, yeah. uh, just a b- um, little bit about uh, setting up an interview. Uh, that one with the Battle of Britain pilot, for instance, yes. I was uh, talking to his wife and setting up the interview, I'll come and see you in Canberra, and she said, would you like to have lunch with us? I thought it would be lovely. And she said, is there anything you don't eat? I said, no, no, I'll eat anything. She said, good, I shall serve you dog biscuits. <laughs> Were they good dog biscuits, Keith? <laughs> they didn't taste like dog biscuits. But, you know. um, Sometimes there's a robust sense of humour can come through. <laughs> yeah, oh, look, yeah, the, this, this Battle of Britain pilot, I won't mention his name, but he had a fighter pilot's end. Right. Uh, he was in a wheelchair in a nursing home and he was racing. And he hit something. He was actually pitched out of it. He broke his neck, and that's that's how he died. Gosh! At ninety-five or six. <laughs> and, and, and that sort of ties into something else we've been discussing earlier, which is that uh, a lot of these guys—they might be in their nineties—but a lot of them, you, you would swear they're not a day over seventy, and, and 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 mentally they're about nineteen a lot of the time too. At the same at the same. Yeah, moment. that's that's something interesting. It's what I've, I've I've found for quite a while is the the if you you think there's a huge age difference. Uh, a little bit less now for me, yeah. <laughs> but when I started, but but after a quick, you know, fairly short time, that just totally disappears, and you're just two blokes talking. Exactly, I find the same thing. You actually see the years fall off them as they start yes, getting into do. their story, don't you? They do, yeah. yeah and suddenly yeah. they're back there, and, and it's, yep. it's like it was yesterday for them. Yep, and and yeah, you just you know, just another mate. And also, I think what helps is having interviewed so many people and understanding the process that they went through, how they were trained, where, and all that sort of thing. Taking, leading them through that, I think, lets them open up because I think the reason a lot of them didn't talk much about it to other people was because they just wouldn't understand. And if they feel that you understand what they went through and where they were, then uh, it makes it a lot easier for them. I think, yeah, I think something that both of you bring to it, I know the other people I've I've seen working on this uh, elsewhere, is that you have to have 
we assume a lot of this knowledge, but there's a fair amount of knowledge, as Keith just said, uh, understanding how the Commonwealth training plan worked and that the vast majority of our air crew went through very similar experiences. So even when you know someone's had an exceptional experience, we were just looking at a couple just now where someone trained on um, Avro, uh, Avro cadets with a civilian training school in the UK, which I got very excited about because it's the kind of thing I've seen very rarely documented. But even then, you know, it's an exception. You know where the structure is um, and then how the battles flowed and so on. And I think what we've all seen where someone comes from let's say mainstream tv perhaps and they set up an veteran interview and they're asking the most appallingly inaccurate and inappropriate yeah. questions yeah and then they don't understand the answers as well yeah like so they don't take they might be given an answer that uh could lead to something yeah, much more fascinating yeah, and, and they that. don't follow it up they yeah. don't yeah. They, yeah. they'll just yeah. go on to their no next idea. written question yeah, yeah. It, yeah. it just annoys me sometimes and um you know Sometimes you get a, a story that unfolds that you just never expect and you explore that and you find out, you actually record some history that's probably never been recorded before. Yeah, I'm sure. I mean, yeah. You must both think of Well, I find some, sometimes you, you, you obviously get a sense of where, where they are emotionally yeah. in, in a story and sometimes you know you can actually pry a little bit further. Yeah. yeah. And for instance, some people will say, and, and I shot him down and then they move on to something else. And say, so, hang, hang on, whoa, 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 whoa. Yeah. <laughs> when you shot them down, where were you? Where were they? You know, did you remember remember anything about their aircraft colour? All that sort of stuff. And it comes back. Mm. I, I find too. Sometimes they can be very reticent. The veterans can be very reticent about wanting to open up to you when they don't know you. Uh, and one chap who comes to mind, um, he was he's one of our fighter aces actually. When I rang him up, I explained what I was doing. He was like, oh, well, you can come and see me, but I don't know what's going to happen here. And uh, well, I thought, well, I'll go and see him because I really want to meet him anyway. And um, we sat down and had a quick chat. And he said, I'm going to give you 15 minutes. And I said, <laughs> I, I said, okay, okay, well, that's better than nothing. So put the camera on him and um, got it all positioned nicely. And then he kind of, just as I started the camera, he turned to the side. So like it was a, it was yes. a real body language thing. I've like he, yeah. like he just, he, he was oh, being very guarded. Yeah. And, and he, he's, he started off basically, I always asked, I asked them their full name, ranks, service number, yep. date of same. birth, place of birth. And, and it just gets them flowing. But, but it's also really good to record as well. And, and, and presumably, it's a, for them, it's almost like a um, you know muscle memory mentally, because if you're in the yes. services, that yep. sort of data is, is core, and you just yes. rattle it off yep. even yep. even 40 years later. Or I, I find the WAFs always forget the service number, <laughs> uh, but, the, but the men always remember it. We're but not exploring that one at all. No, no they, they just probably didn't... <laughs> didn't have to do it so much. Didn't have to do it yeah. so much. But, but the, um, the this particular chap here, he turned to the side, and then he... he um, I could tell he was being very guarded and I said so tell me about your first flight in the Tiger Moth and he was kind of shocked because he thought that I wanted to know all about the um, air-to-air combat because he was an ace and I, and I kept asking questions about his training and he, he started then opening up and, and, it, and it started to come out and before he knew it He'd given me fifty minutes, uh, <laughs> uh, nice. and, and quality and, minutes too. I'm yeah, sure. And, yes. and he and he, I never pressed him about any of the air combat. I, he talked about the operational side of it, but I never pressed him. And he, and he, because he'd already told me that he wasn't going to talk about it. And um, and but all the same, I still got a really good sense of the guy and what he did without having to talk about the Germans he killed. Yes. And, and it was it was only um, after I turned the camera off that he actually told me one of the stories, and I can kind of see why he didn't want to talk about it. It was 
yeah, quite disturbing. Doesn't and, that happen though sometimes when you're packing up? <laughs> yes, you get the best stories. You always. I, I, I actually think maybe you should have an audio no, recorder that's still <laughs> going because I'm really you sure. do. It's a bit sneaky, but yeah. yeah. But and and, it, and it's not on any intention of the veteran. It's no. often that you're packing up and then they'll just remember something. And they'll yes. Yeah, and we're not like, talking about yeah. where, where you're yeah. um, where you're you know abusing a trust or something. But actually, yeah, people have warmed up. They're interested. Yes. And I think a couple of things that I've just been thinking about, and I just wonder if you guys would agree or want to elaborate. But um, I think one of the things we should say in this this uh, podcast, because I think anybody listening to it won't be listening to it on uh, November the 11th. Um, so uh, I think in all, our own three different ways, we've been watching the sort of uh, run into um, Remembrance Sunday, and uh, which is just gone, and also the whole um, the, the question of the, the uh, November 11th. Um, and here we are. I think we, we all do some of this the year round um, in terms of remembering veterans and so on. But it also ties in with a question of respect rather than hero worship. Mm. Uh, I think one of the things I hope's come across in the conversation so far is that we all bring a lot of respect to what these guys did, what they were asked to do, and, 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 and which is a horrible job um, in many cases. Some of them it was great fun, many more not. Um, and, and so on. But not hero worship. And also the jingoism, which is something I think I know we're all very wary of is that uh, there's a lot of stuff coming around today that these days which simplifies and 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 um, jingo jangoifies if that's a word the whole experience and I think most of these guys they thought it was necessary that it was an important job and they felt they were doing the right thing but they were very unjingoistic about it. I don't think you would point to any of your interviews would you where they were jingoistic no I can't I, I seriously can't think of any that um are, are boastful or jingoistic or um, and, often, and in fact often very much the opposite they, they knew what yeah, the reality was yeah, of, yeah. of the thing it, and the cost of war and and so many of the veterans have said oh i haven't got much to tell you or i didn't do anything my story's and not special the best. Yeah. they're always turn yeah. out to be the yeah, best ones they're, they're yeah. very modest uh, when i say best in, in terms of historic content and uh elaborate stories they always turn out to be the best ones and, and uh, you, you mentioned about um, today being the 11th of November, and um, you know that's that's Remembrance Day, Armistice Day. Um, I I think the best way that any of us um, can remember these people is to make sure their stories are not lost, because these guys aren't going to be around with us much longer. No. Um, we're recording them, and you're writing articles about them, James. Yep. Um, Keith's been recording so many in Australia. I've been recording them in New Zealand. Um, and it's so that in the future the next generations can actually hear they they can sit down and they can hear a conversation that you and I are having with them that is you know priceless because how many of us can go back to people from uh, you know the Battle of Waterloo and, and hear them Absolutely. talking about it firsthand? Yeah. You, you just can't do that and, and it's if it's written down if they've written a book it's not as spontaneous it's not as no. not as real it's not as tangible as no, a conversation that's recorded yeah yeah it's real, real emotion yeah and i think an interesting word just to, to hand over to you keith is, is spontaneity is a really interesting word i mean the work i do writing and and so on i very much enjoy it's the, the method of communication i prefer but you are it's not spontaneous it, and it's checked and it's um uh, validated and you've been through and you've arranged things in order I and mean, one of the things that i think you both would say about your interviews is sometimes 
the thing you you go into it and you start at the beginning of the service and you go through training but often they just go off in all sorts of directions oh then this happened and jimmy did that or whatever it is and 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 that's much more human and much more real isn't it it um, is yeah over to you Keith. i was just wondering whether it's maybe worth making a, a bit of an appeal to people who might be listening absolutely yeah uh, I'm sure Dave's got a good contact point he can give, but for anybody who does have relatives, uh, they, it doesn't have to be World War II, it can be more recent for me, yeah. uh, who, who'd like their, to have their stories told, uh, get in touch with Dave. Absolutely. Yeah, pass a- it on. Absolutely. I mean, my contacts will be on the website um, that you listen to this from, um, the Wings of New Zealand show, and uh, anyone in New Zealand who might have a story to tell, contact me. And and anyone in Australia, contact me and I'll pass it on to Keith. <laughs> or go through Keith. Can you give us a contact for Australia? Uh, yes. Well, you can give me a call on 0438 132748. That'll get me. Or keith.web at imagecontrol.com.au. And for people in outside uh, Australia and New Zealand, um, there's obviously various other programs. There's uh, great programs being done in the UK, great programs being done in, in the US and in Canada. So I'm sure you do a little bit of looking around on, on the internet. And if anyone's got any queries or things they'd like to follow up with on this conversation, then drop us an email or whatever, and we'll be very happy to reply as soon as we can. Um, but I think this is, uh, as Dave's just said, you know, recounting and recording these stories. There's a wonderful phrase, I can't remember exactly, and I haven't prepared my notes, which is what I hate doing, but um, which is that, you know, nobody ever dies entirely in, while their name is still spoken. And I think in, in speaking the name, rather than just writing the name, and, and people's uh, experience is a very important part of this. You know, I'd, I'd like to add, um, I was listening to a podcast when I was on the plane on the way over here this morning, and there was some historian in England who was talking about Socrates, and she she quoted Socrates saying, any unexamined life is not worth living. Yeah. And, and I just thought, that's that's kind of appropriate for what we're doing because we're examining these people's lives and their their contribution. And and living for them, they're, they're, they're living, their, their lives were all interrupted by in, in the guys in World War II, a cataclysmic world war. But as Keith said, it might have been a small war you're involved in, but for you it was a big, big part of your life just like the World War II guys. Yeah, yeah. How do you... Uh, how do you approach an interview when you know that you're going to go and interview somebody? How do you prepare? Do you do any research on what they did and do you sit them down first and ask them all about it first before you start recording? Yes, I generally, uh, if it's someone who's been involved in something that, that I don't really know much about, I'll do as much research as I can. But uh, I always sit them down and talk with them first, particularly the ones where I go to their house and I've got plenty of time. I might spend you know, 20 minutes, half an hour, just, just having a bit of a chat. And, um, and I think that's part of the settling in process. And some of them just really start wanting to tell their story. I say, okay, hang on, hold, hold back, hold back, <laughs> until we're actually set to do it. It's interesting because I take a bit of a different approach. I have done that. But um, if... Again, same as you, if it's an area that I don't know particularly much about, but I do know that they were in that, then I will do some research to to know what, I, what, what I'm going in for and, and what I can ask. But um, I, I try my best not to get them talking before the camera's on, because I find often they'll tell a really good story when you're sitting there without the camera on, and when you ask them to say it again, they'll only give half of that. Yeah, and the other thing is where they're interrupt by, interrupted by a telephone or oh. something like that, and we have yeah, to stop and yeah, start again. That's yeah. sometimes hard to get the momentum going yeah, again. It yeah. is. Yep, yeah, yep. Yeah, I've had that very. Yeah. Do you do you find that stories generally tend to fall into about a two two and a half minute end to end 
single story? They generally do, unless you get... There are some veterans that I can think of that are quite exceptional in telling the stories. Um, and I know one that you and I have both interviewed is Brian Cox. People like that who have that photographic memory of everything they did with that detail that they can tell a story that can go for 14 minutes and the whole time you're sitting on the edge of your seat listening to it. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. That one with the storm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, very, very amazing. Yeah. amazing. You're going to have to put a link into that one. Uh, it's, 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 <laughs> hey, I've already got that one on the Wings Avenue Zero Show. Excellent, so, yeah, that's uh, and, and, you know, you can read it in his book as well, Too Young to Die. Um, but, yeah, no, there, there are, as you, you're right, there are little sort of stories that fit into the little two-and-a-half-minute clips usually. Uh, and then there are the occasional ones that you just get amazingly long detailed stories. If I, can, if I can chip in there, I mean, one of the things, and I don't do the interviews you guys do, but um, one of the danger signals to me, and I'm wondering if you'd agree with this, is that th- these guys tended to be storytellers, and, and the, that's how you communicate. Obviously, there's no email, no, uh, no World Wide Web there, and most people didn't write them down until later if they were going to. Um, but there's the danger of the, the kind of... Um, the story learned by repetition and, yeah. and, and where you, you know you yeah. know you're on ground yeah. that they've told this story exactly the same yeah, way hundreds of times Keith times, yeah yeah there's one guy he wouldn't even let me ask me his name it was well hello Keith we're here we are at Tamora and we're on this oh. nice sunny day and he just wall to wall he wouldn't shut up yeah I've had one exactly <laughs> like that they, why, why do you think that is um nerves I don't know nerves sometimes. yeah I think yeah. nerves and I think this particular chap that I'm thinking of um it was just his personality. Yeah. Uh, he was someone who liked to talk, and I know that in the place where he lived with um, other veterans, they knew him as the um, the Lord Mayor. They called, <laughs> they called him the Lord Mayor, and you know, um, so you know, someone might work out who that is. But uh, it's just just the way that some people are, yeah. and and you know, he wants to tell a story, and and totally different when you actually haven't got the camera on. But there are others who who've told that story many times. You know, they're, yeah. they're public speakers for instance yeah, and they're telling yeah. the same story uh, and it does tend to come out a little bit like that so that's yeah. where I try and interrupt it a bit um, and break, if, by yeah. breaking it up yep. what yeah. you're doing there yeah. is that's your, right um, that's right and with the Lord Mayor um, I finally got a word in after about 25 minutes <laughs> and, and and I started throwing things at him which which he had to stop and think and and then the rest of the actual interview is pretty good but yeah. um, no there's there, there's some interesting characters and, and I will say you know, Brian's story, Brian Cox, um, his is one that has been told many times, and I think the first time he, he told it was probably in the 1980s, he wrote it down for Wings magazine, before his book came, before he wrote his book. Um, but the interesting thing is that in those days when he put his book out, in 1986 I think it was, there were a lot of his squadron members, squadron mates that's still out there, there was a lot of guys that yeah. were there, and they, um, you know, backed it up. They they know that okay, you know yeah. that story. That story isn't a re- it is a really incredible story, and yeah. it's it, and it's backed up by other people yeah. who were involved. And, I, and I've actually tracked down some of them and interviewed them myself and yeah. their involvement. And sure enough, you know that that is. But, a, but the beauty of it is that Brian is able to keep it fresh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it sounded like it was the first time he told the story. And Interesting. We're going. We're coming yeah. back to spontaneity again, yeah. aren't we, Keith? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It was great. Yeah, there's just there's some people that you'll never forget. When you've when you've interviewed them, there's, I mean, I, I won't forget it, all of them, but there's some that just stick in your mind, and oh, yeah. and, and the little things that they say, yes. you know, uh, and uh, as well as the the air force stories, I've been recording army and navy, oh, and yeah. um, 
I don't know whether you know, Keith, I've got a, a, a whole different series, not just the Wings Over New Zealand show, but I've got another series called Courage and Valour, and that's the New Zealanders and the Italian campaign in World War yeah. II. Well, we better do another interview about that. <laughs> oh, right. Okay. <laughs> um, now, that, that um, I, I f- almost fell into it because uh, I was introduced to a chap who had given a talk at Probus about his time in World War II. He was an infantryman, and um, a mate of mine had seen him and said, you've got to go and interview this guy so I organized it he brought three of his mates and two of them had been in his platoon now this is in 2010 um, now the fact that three guys from the same platoon who had trained together in New Zealand two of them had gone to school together they, they trained together in New Zealand and then they were in battle together in Italy I mean how what are the odds of that and the, their stories are just fantastic and for, from there I, I was hooked on the Italy story because New Zealanders just don't know about what our guys did there. There's two things that come up every time it's ever in the mass mainstream media. The second battle of Casino, which was a big failure, yeah. and um, Trieste, which was the end. And there was hardly even a battle, it was just walking to Trieste. Now, that's the two things that only ever come up. And in that second battle of Casino, they only ever concentrate on the battle at the railway station, which was 28 Mara Battalion, and they got a hell of a pasting. But I didn't even know until I talked to these other guys who were in different battalions that there were others involved, you know, because the media never tells you that. The whole bloody division was involved in this. And then there was the third battle, which was massive. And then there was the fourth battle, you know, and then there was all these other battles that went through Italy and and before Casino and after Casino. So what I've been doing is tracking these guys down and interviewing them. And right now there's 10 episodes online. Um, Each one is at least an hour long. And they're all veterans telling the story. That's terrific. There's, there's a little bit of, of um, narration, which um, is unfortunately me, and the rest of it is just them telling the story. And I have to say so myself, it is fantastic storytelling because it's them telling the stories, and some of them, they, some of them are so funny. Some of them make you want to weep, you know, and some of them just make you want to cringe at the things they went through. Yeah. Have you ever thought about the degrees of separation? Sometimes I look at my hand, I think this hand has shaken the hand of a man who's shaken the hand of the king. Yeah. yeah. yeah it's all that sort of stuff. It's pretty incredible, oh, isn't it? Absolutely. I, I think, um, and actually I think I would say here, because um, I've, I've travelled a fair amount, in, and particularly around the Commonwealth, and I cover a lot of Canadian end of, of um, experience as well in my writing, and um, one of the things I enjoy, and, and something we were talking about a little earlier, which relates to what, what uh, Dave was just saying, is um, the, the variety of experience. But... Often it depends on where you're standing. So um, we were just talking earlier before before we came online here about um, the World War One uh, experience, and it ties in with exactly what Dave was just saying. I think yeah. we have a big problem in Australia with far too much focus on Gallipoli, which is exactly what Dave said yeah. about the, the um, New Zealanders in in Italy overemphasis on one thing and it all becomes this kind of black hole sucking everything into it Gallipoli is that for Australian World War One experience not that Gallipoli wasn't important it certainly was but there were many 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 other things that we overlooked because of Gallipoli and, and I'm not saying the media is lazy um, but it, it's so common to follow that the, uh, the the ground that's already been already been broken exactly. and what's interesting is that what you're doing with this kind of work is you're following what's available many and again it's easy to forget Lots of these guys never got a chance to tell their story. I, I think yeah. I'm very pleased that, say, the Battle of Britain Memorial Flight changed the colour schemes of their aircraft on a regular basis. But one thing they will never do with the Lancaster, and it's right, but it's also a pity, is they'll never paint it in the colours of a Lancaster that never completed one raid. Because a lot of those guys never got back from their first raid, never told their stories. 
the, Air, the, the Royal Air Force won't paint their Lancaster in those colours and, and for the crew flying it regularly, you can understand why. Yeah. But that's a bit of the story we easily overlook. The guys we get to talk to, there's a random element. There's a random element of luck, as, as Dave just said, sometimes the coincidences are amazing and, and so on. But um, we don't forget that. And I think it also illuminates and shows areas which we wouldn't otherwise get. I think you'd probably say, and I'll ask you to give perhaps examples if you can, one or, one or two examples, is you just never knew this stuff was out there or it just popped up and it's an element of the war. And, and um, it's great we've got historians doing the big narratives and personal stuff, but the personal story informs the big narratives in a much bigger way than I think people realise. Yeah. yeah. And it ties into that spontaneity thing too, doesn't it, as well? Yeah. yeah. I was a guy I was interviewing... Uh, he was an American, and uh, I knew he'd been flying in Vietnam, and I thought, oh, that's, that's pretty interesting. He flew B-52s, and he was talking about the, the surface-to-air missiles that they used to fire at them, and he was looking at the side of the cockpit, and he said, there's one coming up this side, and his co-pilot was just saying, no, 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 and there were four or five coming the other way. <laughs> And they're not going to manoeuvre out of you out of the way. No, no. He said they were telephone poles of fire on the end. <laughs> wow. So that's what they look like. Um, just quickly, another another story relating yeah. to Vietnam. This guy was a helicopter pilot. He was, was Navy Australian, which meant he flew American helicopters. Yeah. And his first trip, first first actual mission was uh, was a dust off. So they were going in to pick up troops. Yeah. And he was flying as a second a co-pilot. And the, the Viet, North Vietnamese had these little spider holes, yeah. and they'd pop up and shoot at him. And he happened to look across, uh, just as they were coming into land, the spider hole popped up, and a guy with an RPG, and he said it was pointing at my head. <laughs> and as I was looking at it, he fired it, and it missed them and hit the aircraft behind and took right. that out. But this, this fellow, he was the most impressive guy to interview. He looked like Yul Brynner, and, <laughs> and he, you know, he was bald and... Talk about um, high testosterone levels. He's yeah. that deep voice, and he yeah. was a scary guy. Yeah, yeah. But great storyteller. Wow. Yeah. And you know, the, 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 often those guys, those stories start and they didn't get finished because they were hit and yeah. were killed yeah. or, or, or severely injured or whatever. Um, but I think another point I'd like to go back to that you both made a different way in, about it, the interviewing is, and we were talking about sort of breaking out of the, uh, the, the, the routine story, is getting them to think. And I think. And that sounds, in its, as a phrase on its own, I think uh, our listeners will understand in the context what we're talking about. It's not as obvious, not what it seems, but getting people to think again. And think for me, it's important to think again about what we think we know. Um, so the course of the war, the history, the jingoism we just touched on as well is, if you're not thinking about it, you're not doing it right. And I think with these guys, um, a lot of the time, by getting them to not tell the story, some of them, as we just discussed, are great at telling a new story or telling it fresh each time, but to avoid the cliches and the, and the repetition, they get to think, and it's probably good for them, hopefully it's good for them, sometimes cathartic in a tough way, often you've said in, in, uh, before and today in good ways, to think again about what, what their experiences were, and, and as we said earlier, sharing it with the, with the family is important. I think one thing I'd like to add in, I just like your take on that really, is the uh, to do these interviews, um, as we've said, there's a lot of people doing them well around the world and, and we've, I think we've got a couple of preeminent personalities in the room. I hope the guys, yes, they're blushing um, for, that particular, for that particular job uh, in the Antipodes. But um, uh, it's great if, if you know somebody who you'd like to get interviewed or you think should be interviewed, that's great. Be careful not to do it yourself, though, unless you've done research and, and so on. It's yeah. very tempting to get involved. It's very tempting to think you know what you're doing. And actually, if it's someone you know, it's often probably the worst relationship to be starting from because you've got all that history and heritage together. 
I'm not saying don't do it. What I'm saying is get expert advice before you do. And I think that's something you guys would back me up on. It's better to get someone who knows how to interview a veteran um, than to go, oh, I need to capture Uncle Charlie's story again. What would you say, Keith? Well, I think capturing something rather than it totally disappearing Absolutely. is, sure, is sure. For, for starters. But, yeah, uh, much better if you can find someone who's experienced in doing the interviews. Yeah, um, I, I would say... You're dead right. I've read a lot of self-published, you would say, books, ones that weren't for public consumption, but they were just for the family, yep. where maybe the daughter or son has written it, and they have things completely... Wrong way around. Wrong way around, because they've just taken what has been said at face value, and they're doing their best, but they haven't gone and actually done any research they outside of it. They don't have the depth of experience. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And, and I have also had a few people who have come to me and said, look, my, my father or grandfather... Um, has this story and um, I personally haven't been able to get to see them so I've said look have you got a recorder because people can get a, uh, an app on their iPhone or their yep. mobile and, and they can sit down and use it as a recorder themselves and I'll, I'll make up a list of questions for them to, to put to them yeah, yeah. you know and mm. and send it off and you know they get some really good interviews yeah. that way so I would, I would revise what I said absolutely as Keith said better to do it uh, if it's going to get lost completely then do it rather than that but yeah. you'll get a lot more out of it with either help from a, a structure, a, a structure of questions yeah. Yeah. Um, and so I think uh, hopefully people will see the, you know, the wings over New Zealand yeah. the stuff at Tomorrow and go and that's the a format is archiving and Very making important. sure that it's not lost and, that, and there are other copies of it and, yeah. and yeah. ultimately there's a, a plan for where it needs to go. I mean, in Australia we have in Australia, we have a, a number of um, uh, national archiving processes going on. There's a Pandora project archiving a lot of internet stuff. Um, and I'm sure the same sort of thing applies in, in New Zealand as well. And as I said, mentioned earlier, one that I know quite well because of my friend's involvement is the EAA archiving their stuff. But yeah, it's not glamorous, doesn't seem uh, exciting, but there's no good in you know getting it recorded and then losing the hard drive that it's on. That, that's worse than not doing it at all. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, in New Zealand, there's a lot less interest... Um, from any official status in in recording veteran interviews than there are in the likes of Australia or America or Britain. There's there's no real funding for it. There's there's nothing really. That That's an interesting point. Because museums aren't interested in it. You know, yeah. I, I've contacted the Navy Museum. They've never done it. Yeah, I, I, never I've even done that, it. Like except for I must say the Timor Aviation Museum, and they are prepared to put money into doing it. Yeah, and and credit to them for that. I think historically, um, that probably the the most important national level archive I can think of is the Imperial War Museum in, in the UK yeah. um, back in the you know the dark days of, 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 yes. of, of um, cassette tape <laughs> yes. doesn't feel like dark days to us I'm sure we can all remember cassette tapes very well but they have a phenomenal archive including right back to I think they even got a couple of Boer War guys very early in the process yeah. Yeah. but I don't think that's an active program at the moment actually, and I, actually if you go online you'll find they're putting them up there eh? yeah that's one of the reasons yeah. I was thinking and thanks and also Australia Remembers too 2000 yeah. which was yeah. which which was great because I've got a lot of these people that are now gone. Yeah, and, and that I can't, the, couldn't do. the conversation today is that many of these people are, are no longer with us. I think I'd also give a shout out to the Imperial War, uh, the, the Australian War Memorial, which did a yes, very similar program a again. Yeah. They've captured a lot, but I think it's interesting that what you guys are doing and what the similar guys overseas are doing is capturing the people who aren't so obvious. And as you've said several different ways, it's often people have got in touch with you or um, you've tripped over them almost, or they've been at an air show at tomorrow and. Um, well, actually, Keith, tell us what happens if you're a veteran at tomorrow and <laughs> this nice man comes up to you. Ah, yes. Well, there is a studio at the museum, which uh, which has been built to be soundproof to almost anything except jets. 
<laughs> you can't keep the Canberra out. Huh? No, no. So uh, it's it's a comfortable air-conditioned environment, particularly over summer where it gets very hot in Tamora. But uh, what happens is uh, an interview is arranged and you come in, you sign a little bit of paper that's just a release form, it's a permission form yeah. to do the interview. And uh, we sit down and, and talk for an hour, half an hour, whatever, however long it takes, unless I've got 10 interviews stacked up to do in a day. And so you'll be looking, you'll be looking to do these, uh, hopefully catch some people at the air show coming That's, up in a couple of weeks. yes. And the other thing is uh, we give a, a free copy of the entire unedited interview to the, to the family. And that itself is, is worth it on its own. I mean, we're very keen that it's archived. And it, I think what we just said in a roundabout way is that this is stuff we feel is of national importance. Um, it's uh, funded in, in the case of Tomorrow by the Tomorrow Museum. Uh, I think uh, we, we, Keith and I would certainly agree with Dave's huge efforts supported by uh, a, a quorum of, of dedicated New Zealanders, but is very much independent, not, not government supported, but is of national you know, New Zealand importance. And as we were saying on the way, and I don't think anybody's interviewed more um, New Zealand aviators than, than Dave has, and, and it's great that that's been captured. Yeah, um, I just want to also add that um, when I said that there wasn't any real official support in New Zealand, um, there are a couple of people who have had um, funding rounds, if, if you could call yeah. it that. Yes, sort um, of one off. Yeah, uh, and, and, and if, you know, if they manage to talk them into it, they might get another funding round. And, and one of the piece, people who's done really sterling um, work there is B Dawson, who I've actually had on the show recently. Yeah. And um, another is Alison Parr. And that chap that I talked about earlier that was from originally from Cambridge who jumped out of two Lancasters and you know ended up in the POW camp um, after after I'd recorded that and put it up on my website Alison Parr somehow must have read it because she then tracked him down and she did a, a recording an official recording um, okay. with, with him and it, it, you know it ended up going into one of her books so that's great because it got a much wider yeah. um and that's it. We're not. I don't think. I think we'd all agree. We're not being precious about. It. It's not like do it with with my organiser. You know, we're more than happy if somebody else picks it up somewhere oh, else and it's archived properly, a, as Keith said. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I'm all about sharing the stories. That's what this is. What this is about. They share it with me, and I share it with other people. So yeah. So that it it's heard and and it's understood and it doesn't get lost. That's what it's all about. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. What we're looking at here is a, a computer illustration. I put a little story about my uncle on online, yep. and I was contacted by a digital artist who said, would you mind if I used his aircraft as an example for an illustration I wanted to do? So he did a bit of research about what was going on at the time. This was um, in May 1943. Yeah. And the Germans were running iron ore convoys right. from Sweden. And so that's, that's, that's what the attack was about. A couple of weeks before this attack, he'd actually successfully attacked a ship and torpedoed it. Right. Which less people did than you think from the stories. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. And and he was flying a Hamden, which was... By 1943, the squadron was about... It was 415. They were about to change over to Wellingtons. Right. And it was a very... I mean, the, the, the Hamdens are one of the aircraft I... I like because, and, and it kind of ties in with, with um, what Dave was saying earlier about the Wildebeest, although this is a monoplane, is that it was what they thought the future was in the 30s, and it was really a, a, a great aeroplane for the 1930s and a Absolutely. terrible aeroplane for the war. Yes. They were hand flexibly mounted machine guns in the rear positions, and we're looking at the picture here now, um, and uh, you know, t it twin-yoked 303 calibre, I think they might have even been pan-fed um, Vickers Go machine guns. guns. Yeah, yeah um, a couple of fixed forward-firing machine guns, 
guns. Um, not a great speed, not particularly strong or well-armoured aircraft, and, the, and these guys were chucking some pretty big rocks back, as we can see in the picture. Yes, yes. There is one story that this, we have one letter that, that survives uh, that he wrote back to the family. Wow. Almost all of them were destroyed in the, the grieving process, I think. Almost, yep. He almost ceased to exist. Wow. Yeah, that does happen. Yeah. Um, and this is a story about a, a, a dodgy do where they were right. sent out to the Skagarak. Yep. And there was a recall and he, he didn't get the recall. He didn't yep. hear it. And he, he, one of his engines caught fire and the blades actually were flung off. Oh. It was burnt out. Wow. But he did make it back. And uh, I remember him uh, in the story saying that after he's landed, the, the crew chief came up and he walked around the good side of the aircraft and, and he said, you should have heard his language when he walked around the other side. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that's another thing we haven't perhaps said earlier, but I know we all agree, it's definitely worth mentioning here, is that the crew, the ground crew, crew chiefs, uh, the, the men in black for the, the, the Schwartz guys and for the Germans, their experience of war was no less real. Um, the dangers were very different. Uh, many of them would be attacked on their bases or whatever, but um, their emotional involvement was, was very, you know, they worked in incredibly difficult conditions with machinery that was often not good enough for the job, um, trying to maintain it for their, for their air crews. And they're often overlooked. And, yeah. and I think yeah. it's, it's important to recognise that, you know, these guys uh, made no less a, a commitment in many ways to, to yeah. the war. The other, the other aspect about my uncle, which uh, I, I was quite interested in, was with maybe one or two photographs of him. He was a champion high jumper. He went to Scotch College, and oh, you know, right. so he was yep. sort of a, one of these very up and coming yep. guys. He had started university and then volunteered okay. to, to join the air force. Um, I just happened to find a book called The Noble Six Hundred, which was a, a, a series of accounts of aircrew who trained in Rhodesia during the oh, okay. Australians. Yeah, yeah. And he was in there. His story was in there. And it was written by a fellow called Barry Smith, who was his mate. They, they'd paired up in oh. Australia and they did all their training on Oxfords together in Rhodesia. And Barry said, I've, I've got pictures wow. that I took in Rhodesia. So there were photographs of them on going on little holidays. Yeah, and, yeah. and actually they took pictures of each other, I don't know how, looking up in the Oxford cockpit of each other flying. Yeah. So suddenly there was all this, this extra material and stories that's that coincidence we're talking about, and the yes. small world effect too. Yeah. I think, um, yes. and and as, as Keith you mentioned earlier, degrees of separation is that I, I'm no longer surprised when I'm talking to somebody that we often have in that conversation common uh, contacts and information. Yes. It, it was a big war with with millions of people involved, yes. but um, for, I think perhaps for Australia and New Zealand particularly, it was a very small club. I mean, the pre-war RAAF and and I think the the pre-war RNZAF were tiny. Anyone you're dealing with who was in those air forces before 1939, yes. knew everybody else, it yes. seems, didn't yeah. they? Yeah. I had, uh, I still have my uncle's logbook. That's great. And Barry had his logbook, and we were comparing page to page, ah, yes. because they flew with each other all yeah. the time. And Barry noticed, uh, he asked if he could have it overnight, and uh, so they said, yeah, that's fine. When I came back, he'd actually written things in, because my uncle hadn't put the year, ah, okay. as yeah, you're supposed yeah. to, in the top left yep. column. And if anyone else had done that, I would have been... <laughs> <laughs> Pretty upset, but he had an exception. Oh, yes. absolutely! Yeah. yeah. So tell us a bit honor. more about this. Um, this uh, the illustration. You're looking at yes. Uh, well, I think there's a lot more to, to say other than it's it's very accurate in terms of the, the colour scheme. Uh, right. Yeah. That wasn't his regular aircraft. He he flew. Okay. So um, he's, he's in a um, he's in a borrowed one for for whatever reason. And um, correct me if I'm off beam here, Keith. What we're looking at is um, so the aircraft's doing a, a, a beam attack on a convoy. We can see a couple of ships ahead with uh, with searchlights. Searchlights. Picking yes. out the aircraft. Lots of flak. 
lots of flak, and they were heavily armed. Yes. Um, they're, they're attacking um, from uh, with, the, with the moon behind the ships, which is the, a good attack for uh, anti-shipping, uh, but doesn't necessarily help them in terms of defence. And I think he's in a, um, a, a late war sort of slate grey, green skin. Grey, green. <coughs> yeah. Yes, that's right. Yes. And I think, it, for me, I, I work with lots of different people in different fields and enjoy that, that diversity. And it, I think we'll give a little tip of the hat to the artists here as well, because, you know, what, what there are challenges in doing recording, whether it be audio or visual. There are challenges in, in, in researching stuff, uh, as I do for writing. But there's a different, whole sort of different set of challenges for doing an accurate and credible uh, artwork of, of a battle scene. Um, you, you, sometimes you can actually re-see the environment or get photographs, but often you can't, and it's really easy to get it fundamentally wrong, the wrong yeah. area plane type or going the wrong way or whatever um, and these guys often do some phenomenal research to pull together something that puts you as it was then. To, uh, to you, um, how, how do you see that in terms of a, uh, an accurate It looks to me very credible from the little I know of these kind of operations yeah. and, and, and I think also um, you know the composition of it as, a, as, a, as an illustration is very good. It's, it's very dynamic. Yes, it's very dramatic. Um, um, maybe we'll be able to put it up on or a version of it up with the with the blog, um, so our listeners can have a look as well. But um, it's a different way of telling the story. I think something that Dave mentioned earlier. I think we all agree is. Um, we think these are all stories, um, not fictional, true stories uh, in, in the vast majority of cases. And um, they're different ways of telling it. Sometimes the picture's the way of doing it, sometimes an audio recording, sometimes something else. Yeah. One more connection I'll mention is that uh, his name is Flying Officer Keith Waffen. So Waffen was my mother's name. Yeah. And I was named after him. Oh, oh nice. Well, so uh, you really did have to research it, didn't you, Keith? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think looking at that picture, um, for me, it, it's actually really interesting because the first thing you said about it when you started talking about him was it was the same night as the Dam's Raid. The, probably the most um, famous event in the RAF in World War Two, perhaps. Yeah. Arguably, and, yes. And, and um, in terms of a single operation. Single, yeah. And the rest of the world has forgotten that, that there were other operations happening that night. That's right, and, and Keith Watson would have known absolutely nothing of it. Exactly, yeah. 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 And, and, you know, that to me, it just speaks volumes because the war was going on around those guys that very bravely attack the dams but this guy is doing something just as uh, just as just dangerous, as dangerous. And in his case fatal yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. and to the other crew too yes. there, there were two, two aircraft in that, lost, that yeah. Yeah. yeah terrific well thanks for taking us through that keith Pleasure. Sure. can you tell us a bit about the work you've actually done with the airplanes when you've been up doing film film yeah, work sure. in the airplanes oh yes well this it all started when i was doing the uh, the warbirds dvd for the museum and I hadn't actually done any air-to-air -air shooting before. I'd been filming for many, many years, and it's a totally different kettle of fish trying to shoot air-to-air. -air. I think, uh, if I can interject there, one of the things that people, many of our friends who are photographers, keen um, enthusiasts or whatever, say, I'd love to do air-to-air, -air. and they say, oh, do you get to do lots of air-to-air? -air? And I go, no, I do a bit, and I... I'm very careful to keep it. I'm a writer. Um, we have other people who do the photography because it's actually really hard. And uh, for a joke, for many years ago, for a f with a friend, I um, I wrote a list of uh, of aviation acronyms and so on. I, I said. Um, air-to-air -air photography, a very expensive, awkward way of travelling backwards to make yourself sick. Um, and, and it is very tough. Still photography is tough, but I think the, um, the film photography is tough in a different it's way. It's much, very much harder. Yeah, much, much harder because, uh, yeah, that's, to begin with, most of the cameras you're using are far heavier. Yeah. Uh, when we were doing the original Warbirds, the, the camera of choice was a digital beta cam, which, which probably weighs about, I don't know, five kilos. Yeah. 
we were doing a shoot with a Canberra and we wanted to get a shot of it going vertical. And I was in a T28 with Steve Deeth flying. It has a little, a special canopy they'd made for it yep. with a little window which is behind you. Yeah. Right. And the digital beta cam had the viewfinder on the wrong side, so I had to undo all that, gaffer tape it all together. And then I had to hold it in a, uh, it's probably, I think, about a three and a half G pull up. <laughs> so oh, I just had to brace the thing and hope for the best. Three and a half times the weight it is normally. And of course, your yeah. muscles are used to only holding it up at yeah. a third of that. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, and then Canberra peeled off one way, and, and we went off, and Steve just did a whole lot of aerobatics. And I said, Steve, no, please. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But what I do find, even even being thrown around quite a bit when, you, when you're shooting formation stuff, is if I'm looking through the viewfinder, I'm fine. Oh, right. Yeah. 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 You, you'd think it would be the opposite. It's a bit well, like when you're trying to read a new, in, a, in a car or something. Indeed. But For a lot of people, it is the opposite. And yeah. I think one of the big dangers, and my earlier slightly flippant comment, is that um, staring you know, over your shoulder through an, an SLR camera of any kind at the view, and it almost always is a degree of bumpiness, and always, almost always you're going to be at some degree of yeah. zoom, not a natural view, uh, field of view. Um, very easy to become disconcerted uh, yes. and, and worse. And these flights are very carefully briefed as well. Of course, uh, it's yeah. always you know, safety is the first priority. This time, two years ago, at the last Warbirds, before that, we did a, a flight where I was in the back of the Caribou, and there were one, two, three, four other people shooting. It was a very packed Caribou, I seem to remember from the photos. It was pretty busy, and and they had the brilliant idea that we'd be able to see better if they took the side doors off as well which introduced this absolute tornado of wind through the rear part of the aircraft, so everyone had to move back in. And we we had three ship, you know, Echelon, Spitfire, Spitfire, Hornet. I can only see two at once, and only most of them, you know. Yeah. Uh, and it was being choreographed for the stills guys who were in front of me anyway, and it was their gig, and I was just sort of travelling along. But it was... I can remember thinking, uh, oh, this is the other thing, we weren't allowed to wear, have anything loose in our pockets, nothing like just that. Go out the back door we were right? going to have the sabre behind us, so we didn't want yeah. to fight the sabre. Yeah. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I can remember thinking, after my earplugs fell out, <laughs> am I really enjoying this or is this just a bit too hard? And I thought, no, I'm enjoying it. Yeah. And that's, that, there's a lot of, I mean, I think the thing is a lot of people think this is great fun and it's opportunities. For some people it is a day job, it is, it is hard work. Um, but uh, it, it is a challenge to get this stuff right. It's, it's very challenging because what you're aware of is just how much it's money it's taking to, yeah. to put these aeroplanes into these yeah. positions. The dollar signs are For you over. to not muck it up. Yeah, yeah. That, that's exactly what all the anti-air photographers I've ever talked with um, mentioned is that how they're just trying their best not to waste people's money. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. you have, to, you have yeah. to deliver. Yeah. yeah. And in almost all cases, you're pulling together aircraft that are disparate, performance different. Oh, um, yeah. Serviceability yeah. can be variable in terms of are they reliable, going to go on the day you need them to go. And, of course, one thing we haven't mentioned, which is at the top of everyone's mind, weather. You can have yeah. it all lined up and the weather won't allow you yeah. to Yeah, well, this particular one was an interesting briefing because it was a RAF briefing. Simo did it. Yeah. So it was a Fotex. <laughs> and we were Photogs. <laughs> Um, but it was a brief down to the last detail. Yeah, yeah. It really was. And if you ever get the chance to, to see this kind of thing in, in happening, it's it's well worth a watch. And I think for a lot of people, it make them realise this, this isn't just the sort of peak of fun air show photography. It's a lot of hard work too. Yes. Do you ever find when you're up um, with some of the aircraft like the Hudson or the um, P-51 
P40s or the Spitfires or anything like that, um, do you start thinking about the stories of the guys that you've been talking about? I do sometimes, yeah. I do. Well, we had an occasion on the pilgrimage. This is, what, three years ago? Uh, it was 2011, so oh, four years. Four years yes, time's okay. whizzing by there. The Rath pilgrimage, yeah. where we, we did a series of, of shortish flights, one each day. Uh, I was on the leg from Tokemal to Ballarat, I think it was. And in Tokemal, a few people had come to have a look, and and uh, there was a fellow with his father who was, you know, clearly of the right age. And, and although not that on the young side of that pretty, right age, yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Doug Hamilton was talking to him and, yeah. and found out that he'd flown Hudson's, and uh, his son was there, and he pointed to his son. And he said, "You in the car? You drive to Ballarat. You, you're coming with us." I've got a photograph of that conversation actually, which I think yeah it was used in the um, the Air Force Museum ca- uh, calendar that year. It's a great one, and, and anyone who knows Doug, sadly um, not not flying at the moment, but uh, will know what a character he is with these kind of things. And that's oh, yeah. that's another way of, of capturing the stories. This guy had really just been in the area. His family brought him along to the airfield. There was a Hudson on the airfield. There was a Spitfire, a Mustang, a whole range. I think I can't remember how many aircraft we were travelling with, but a very good uh, selection. Yeah. yeah. I was going to say not only that, but the the Spit and the Mustang flew with us in formation, right. and and they formatted specially for him yeah. just off the wing. Nice. Yeah, it was nice. great. It was just great. Yeah. And he was like a dog with two tails at the end of it. <laughs> yep, reliving the reliving the memories. Oh, th- thanks for covering that. It's a really good point to to pick up there, Dave. Yeah. Well, um, I think we probably have pumped you for enough information. <laughs> How does it feel to be on the other end of the interview? Oh, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a slightly strange feeling, yeah. But uh, just wait till you pack everything away and then we'll tell the good stories. <laughs> Perfect. Excellent. Thank you very much, Keith. Thank you, Keith. And it's, it's really good to have you as the, as the first interview of, of this uh, Wings Over Australia series. Excellent. Yes, thanks very much, Keith. Cheers. That was the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. <laughs> Thank you.